you have a Bible, please turn to Hebrews 13 with me. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, I'm going to read our passage tonight and then pray and we'll get started. Hebrews 13, verse 1, these are the words of God. Let let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are thankful. Uh, that you have assembled us as members of one body. And we pray that in our witness, um, we might be bold enough to go outside the camp and bear the reproach of your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Holy Spirit, to learn and apply so that in our learning we can bear the fruit of your kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 
So we have been journeying through the book of Hebrews, and we now come to the 18th message, which, yes, Jack, you're right, it's the last message of our series. Um, And we called the series Hebrews Outside the Camp. This is quite literally the final word, um, which is why I titled the message thusly. The subtitle to the series was Outside the Camp, and we read that verse. It comes from our text this evening here in verse 13, which says, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, we'll dig into what that means a little bit um, later. Now, one of the central things that we teach here at Cross and Crown Church is a faith for all of life. Um, That's what we talk about often. The expression, if you look in the front of your bulletins, you'll see it there, uh, it reads, all of Christ for all of life. So that's our way of saying every bit of Jesus Christ and, every, and all the stuff that comes with him, right, the, all the stuff he brings into this world, all of it applies to every bit of life. Um, so there's no dualism, there's no chopping up what the Bible calls us to do. Um, we cannot pick and choose what we like about Christ, what we don't like about Christ. Um, you know, we don't want to pull a Thomas Jefferson here and go about our merry way. We have to take all of Christ and apply him to all of life. So this is a shorthand way of saying what our purpose here is, and that's on your front of the bulletin too. Why do we exist? We exist to equip men, women, and children. Children, that means you too, right? We're trying to equip you to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. So kids, your world is not that big yet. Uh, Your sphere is not all that big of a deal. You got to clean up your room. And that's about it, right? I mean, there, there are a few things that come with that. But your job is to take the kingship of Christ and press that into everything. Jesus Christ belongs in your business. And, and if you don't let him, he will mess with you. So, good luck. <laughs> Our God is a consuming fire. So this means that as a fellowship, we, we will talk about, the, about things that the church, generally speaking, doesn't talk about. And we do this not because we're trying to be hip and cool, as though one's going to gain popularity by fighting the abortion holocaust, for example, um, but because we are absolutely convinced that the Bible actually does teach us about everything in life. God created this world. He has given us His Son to redeem this world. And that means that in all of it, all of us here in this room, we have a role to play. We're not passive Um, observers, right? Passive, you know, we'll call ourselves passive participants, like that's oxymoronic. You can't do that. We are all active partakers in this grand plan. So all Christians have brought into this, been brought into this grand plan of redemption and in this kingdom of God, which means that now you have to find your way. You are responsible to find your way in this, and you have to... um, this speaks for you too, kids, you have to live your life in accordance to the purpose that God has given you. Because what, has, what God has called you to do may be a little bit slightly different to, to maybe something else. You, you all have an individual purpose for the kingdom of God. So, so exalt Him in your business, exalt Him in your pursuit of education, exalt Him in all these other places. Now, there are ways to do this, and then there are ways to not do this things that we should be doing, um, but there are also things that we shouldn't be doing. And all of this is the case because the Bible 
is a covenant document, and it outlines the ethics of the covenant. So it, you can try this, and, and I will be proved right. It does not matter what page of the Bible, not including the table of contents or the maps, but anything in between, it does not matter what page you turn your Bible to. The Bible roots everything in an issue of ethics, morals, right and wrong. That's what covenant is. And this is because that, the nature of that covenant relationship uh, between God and man. God is the sovereign. He, he's the sovereign one. Man's subordinate to him. Man has rebelled against the covenant, and thus we've incurred death. And God is the sovereign who thus, you know, he punishes rebellious men. Now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews outlines all of these things. Because as we talked about last week, uh, Hebrews is a post-millennial commentary on the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews takes the entirety of the Old Testament, especially the hard places of Leviticus. I've been reading through Leviticus lately, and it's, it's rough. There's, there's a lot of stuff in there about cleanliness and holiness and blood, and you know, there's, a, there's a whole host of things. But Hebrews takes all of that, um, including the issue of God's covenant, including the issue of sin and rebellion, and he brings it, all of it, the writer brings all of it to show how Christ deals with it. Jesus is here. What are the temple? What are the sacrifices? You know, Christ is greater than Moses, we learned early on. He's greater than the Levitical priests. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the angels. He is greater than all of that because he is the substance while all of those things are the shadow. The temple, the priesthood, the blood, the animal blood, all that's a shadow of Jesus Christ. So that's essentially, if you wanted to summarize Hebrews in three words, it's this, Christ is greater. Christ is greater. Now, the reason that Christ is greater is not just because he's the substance and they're the shadow, but because of everything that he does as the substance enacts something better. So, in other words, there are positive repercussions of Jesus for your life. Yes, he's, he's the great Melchizedekian priest king, but why is he greater? Well, the whole letter has told us why. His blood is better. His blood is better. Um, it provides actual forgiveness for you. Um, it provides the true removal of guilt from your life. It provides a perfect substitution that does not have to be repeated endlessly in the temple over and over. Jesus died how many times? <laughs> One. One time. Once for all. Now, the atonement of Christ isn't this turgid doctrine with no actual side effects. It, it's not, in other words, it's not embellished so much that you know we have to try and sell it to people knowing that it's not a good product. You know, that's how many Christians approach evangelism. We're trying to sell something we don't even believe in. No, Christ is, is better, right? He has entered the heavenly veil. He is in heaven as an anchor there. And because Christ, being the head of the church, his people. His people, that's us, can have confidence that their sins actually are forgiven and that the marching orders of this king gives us can actually be carried out. So we are people of hope. We are people of the scriptures. We are people of the king. And this is the exciting thing about the book of Hebrews. We are people of the mission, too. We don't, it's not that God gave you a doctrinal truth and said, there, just sit on it. He gave us a mission. 
As I've said repeatedly in this series, Hebrews is the book of Deuteronomy rehearsed. The time between Christ's ascension and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was one generation, 40 years. Like Israel, who wandered how many years in the wilderness? 40 before they took the land of Canaan. So the recipients of this letter, the Hebrews, they were in the same wilderness waiting to take the land for Christ. This letter isn't a bunch of doctrinal stuff for you to sit on. This letter is a bunch of doctrinal stuff that moves you into something. It pushes you into something. So in short, the Hebrews of the first century, they were led by Jesus. Jesus is Joshua 2.0, and their mission was the same. What's our mission? What are we supposed to do? It's the same thing as Joshua. Cleanse the land tear down the high places, establish the Christian gospel in the land, and we serve the Lord with fear and trembling. So we cannot be content with what the current thing happening is. You know, We can't be content with that. We cannot be content with um, uh, the Noahic covenant flag being taken from us <laughs> and used in a completely opposite direction of what it actually means. Um, so that, that's our mission. I'll say it again. Cleanse the land, tear down the high places, establish the Christian gospel in the land, and serve the Lord with fear and trembling. And that's our mission. That's what your family should be geared toward. That's what you children need to know. You need to know that that's what we're supposed to do. So from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, the early church, and thus us today, were to be a circumspect people, right? They were to carefully... They were to carefully consider all of the circumstances, carefully right, count the costs, as Jesus said, make, you know, plan, be, be a prudent, prudent on how to, how to do what? How to press the crown rights, how to press the gospel into the world that desperately needs it. So we are people of the mission. And since Hebrews is this great challenge to carry out the great commission in terms of the Christian gospel, and since the world is this desultory ditch of humanistic despair, you might think, okay, well, what's, what final word needs to be said to a people that are sent to take the land? What, what, how would you end a letter like that if you were um, uh, you know, encouraging people in the faith and sending them out on the mission? How would you end it? Well, Hebrews 13 is the end. That's, the, that's it. So let's look at our text, and we'll kind of walk through this quickly, but I want to summarize it this way. In verses 1 to 6, there are social duties, right? Verses 1 to 6, you have social, social responsibilities. Verses 4 through 17 are what you might call religious responsibilities. And then 18 through the end are basically you know, this personal interaction, so with that in mind, let's work our way through. Go ahead and open up. Make sure your Bibles are open. And I'll, I'll walk with you through this. We read in verse 1 that we're told that brotherly love must continue. They've done it before. They're doing it now. They must, it must continue. They must keep doing it. In what way does brotherly love, well, then express itself? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 urges us not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the reality is, because like Abraham, we might be entertaining an angel and not know it. Well, just to give you some history, while traveling through the Roman Empire at the time, um, if you wanted to stay at a place, uh, you could find a place to stay, but a prostitute would come with a deal. 
That was normal. Normal in the Roman Empire. Wherever you would go. Room and board and someone for the evening. That, it was a package deal. Christians were told to travel right on the Roman road system. Right, Beautiful how God worked that out. They were to travel to preach the gospel, but they were to avoid this type of evil. So where are they supposed to say, stay? Well, you stay with your brothers and sisters. Brotherly love, hospitality towards Christians who may need to stay with you for a time. So I, I feel like I don't have to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Your home does not need to be open to pagans, and like you know, staying with you weeks on end. And <laughs> you don't necessarily have to, to let that sort of thing happen. But as far as hospitality and, and general disposition, yeah, our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, we need to show that towards them. In verse 3, we're supposed to remember our brothers and sisters who are in prison, who are part of the body of Christ, the same body that you are a part of. And, and, and in, of course, back then, they were in prison. Why? Because of their faith. That's the persecuted church today. We must pray for them. Verse 4 brings up the issue of marriage, one which our current culture knows nothing about. We are told that it should be held in honor among all. It is, after all, an institution that God has created. And part of that honor stems from the ethics of the bed. Why is the bed brought up? Well, it must be undefiled. And I take that to mean um, adultery and other, any other sexual sin and everything else that drives a wedge between a husband and wife ought to be. Not, ought not to be. Why? Because it's evil. And God judges fornicators and adulterers. So revere it. Honor it. Protect it. Honestly, in the next decade, you know what's going to be the most radical thing? Being married for 60 years. The next 50 years even. Why? Well, you know, marriage is this outdated institution, and now we have bent it in such a way that it can mean anything. Well, what's going to be radical? Being Christians who hold marriage in high regard, who actually honor it, who cherish it, who clearly lay out biblical gender roles and definitions. That's radical in our culture, because now anything goes. So we're to protect it. Verse 5 brings all of this together. It kind of seems like a hodgepodge here, but there's a main, there's a main point here. Verse 5 says that um, we're supposed to make sure that our character, your in character, your, your, uh, your integrity, and everything wrapped up in it is supposed to be free from the love of money. But you also, another command, must be content with what you have. Now, why is that important? Well, because the Bible teaches in, in um, Deuteronomy 31.6, Joshua 1.5, and even in Matthew 28, that God will never desert you. He will never forsake you. You belong to Christ. God has you. You are His. And you can rest in Him. You can find contentment in Him. And we can also do all of that because the Lord is our helper. Right? I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Godly fear sometimes looks like you standing in the face of a culture bent on destroying you and destroying Christ, trying anyway. Godly fear is you standing there knowing you can't do anything to me. <laughs> what are you going to do? Take my life? I will be resurrected. We win. You know, that type of courage, that type of of attitude. So with these ethical parameters in place, we also have religious responsibilities. Um, not that those are necessarily you know, completely separate. Verse 7 says, To honor those who led you, 
who brought you the brought to you the word of God. Honor the people in your life who have given Christ to you and who've taught you the Bible. Now I imagine a lot of you you can remember the time when you came to Christ. You can remember the important people. I remember when um, when I was ordained into the United Brethren Church a few years ago. Um, there was a gentleman at the church I grew up in at Seneca who just always showed interest in me and always invested in me. And it was an honor to have him stand there um, at my ordination because that's a man I, I, can, I can honor. He really you know, knew I had a, had a desire to know God's Word, knew I had a desire to study it, and he saw that and he invested in it. He invested in me and, and praise God for, for him. Um, so honor those people. Consider their life. Consider their conduct. To the degree that it aligns with Scripture, follow it, right? Imitate it. We should imitate people um, to the degree that anybody's following Christ. That's what Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. To the degree that anybody in your life is following Jesus, imitate that. Verse 8 gives us more to consider. Jesus is immutable. Kids, Jesus is immutable. You know what immutable means? He does not change. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. He's this mediator of this glorious new covenant today, but he's also the same mediator that's always been, even yesterday, that is even during the old covenant. So all of our ethics, all of the the things that we do, from from being kind to your your siblings or um, loving your spouse, all of those things are to be centered on Jesus, who is the immutable one. He never changes. Now, regarding our religious responsibilities, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that we should not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Um, To use Peter's language, don't be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Don't don't be on 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 a raft floating and then find yourself out to sea because you thought it would be cute to mess with heresy. <laughs> and the example is given. The heart is strengthened by grace. I love that verse. The heart is strengthened by grace, not by food. Now, what, what is he talking about here? Well, there's a clear allusion to the, to the food and dietary laws that Christ came to abolish. Verse 10 says that we have an altar. We have an altar. You guys want to go to an altar to pray? Who do you go to? You go to Christ. Jesus is our altar. Those in the temple of Jerusalem, they cannot partake of Christ's communion meal. Why? They don't have Christ. They don't have Jesus. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, in the Mosaic economy, think Old Testament, the older covenant required sacrificial, you know, a sacrificial system, animal blood. And sometimes, because there was so much sin in the camp, the sacrifice had to be made by the priests outside the camp. So on the Day of Atonement, and even when a priest was consecrated, you can read that in Exodus 29, 14, the sacrifice itself was actually done outside the camp. The sin was so bad it had to be taken away from the camp, which is an interesting concept. But this 
same principle applies to Jesus in verse 12. Jerusalem had become so corrupt that Jesus, in order to sanctify his people by his own blood, he suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. Um, Just read Matthew 23 if you want to get the scoop on how Jerusalem was during that time. Um, His reproach, we are told, we have to bear. His rejection and dismissal by the religious leaders in Rome herself led Jesus outside the camp, outside the gate. Now, we know that Jesus was beyond reproach, right? He was without blemish. But in order for him to take away the sins of his people, the sins of the very people who sent him to the, to the cross and outside the gate, he had to go outside the camp to die. Don't miss the significance of this. Which means that <clears throat> if, if, if we want all of Christ, if we want to have Christ, we must, the text says, go outside the camp. We must do it with an attitude that knows that we are bearing his reproach. Um, more on this in a moment. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So the rest of the letter gives us these final instructions. <clears throat> the way we are to offer a sacrifice to Christ, look at verse 15. How do you offer a sacrifice to Christ? Well, we praise God, which means we have to be prayerful, exuberant singers. We must honor Him with our lips. We must sing to Him. We must adore Him. And the way we do that is not just, you know, um, sort of, you know, oh, I don't even like this song, and it's an old hymn, and I just, whatever, and you just have this attitude. Well, then keep your mouth closed. (laughs) So you either praise Him because He's worthy of it, or be quiet, that sort of thing. So we're also told in verse 16, we must not neglect to do good to one another, for this is what pleases God. You ever thought of that? How do, you, how do I please God? How do I please Him? Do I just think lofty thoughts about His sovereignty? Do I study Greek words and parse the verbs out? And you know, do, How do I please God? The Bible tells you how to please God. It's right in front of you. Verse 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So kids, share your toys. When you share your toys, let's apply this. When you share your toys, God is pleased. Amen. (laughs) When you share, and adults, the same thing. When we share with one another, when we, we... we are pleasing God. God is very much pleased by that. Now, um, those who are given authority from Scripture, the text says, to lead by serving the church, they are to be obeyed and submitted to. They, they are shepherds under Christ who is the shepherd, and they, in, in the text says they care for your souls. So don't be a problem for your mentor. Don't be a problem for people that God has put in your life um, who, who is leading in various capacities uh, it does nobody any good. It makes you upset, and it makes those who may be pouring into you, you know, um, perhaps even more frustrated. Look at verse 18. It gets very personal toward the end. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. And then look at the very last verse. He says, greet all, you know, all your leaders, all the saints, to the, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. The letter ends with grace because grace is everything. It started with grace. 
right? In these last days, Jesus was given, Jesus is grace. God is the God of peace. He brought Jesus, this great shepherd, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. He brought him up from the dead. Verse 20, it's the blood of the eternal covenant. Um, he intends to equip all of you in every good thing to do his will, all for the glory of, of God and his Christ forever. Verse 21. So that's just the overview of the passage, kind of digging in. Let's pull, you know, expand out a little bit. What can we take away? What, what can we take from this passage? Earlier, I asked this question. What final word needs to be said to a people who are sent to take the land? Because as I, I made this observation maybe a few weeks ago, we think, we think we have it bad. How many evangelical Christians are in America? Well, we have over 300 million people. I think the numbers are like half say they are Christian. Um, way less even attend church regularly. You know, you think of the different polls that are out there. And, and we're told to disciple this nation so that it obeys Christ. So that means we have to get Congress, we have to get the president, we have to get the vice president. I mean, you know, there are Christians in our government, but we have to get them all. They, they need to obey Christ. That's the goal. Um, we need to get our neighbors who don't know Jesus to know Jesus and submit their lives to him. And so we can, we can sit back and think, man, like, well, maybe we can get some of this stuff, but Hollywood... That's too big. The, the media, I don't know if we can get them. And so what happens to the church? Generally, it just kind of shrinks down. It's given to fear. And we just kind of close down, and we're, we're content with just doing the, the Sunday morning thing, or Sunday evening, as it were. Think about the Hebrew Christians who received this letter living in a Roman empire that was as pagan as anything, walking down the street and you, there's a bathhouse and there's stuff happening. The constant civil war, constant persecution of Christians, Nero burning Christians and lighting his garden at night. Do you think, do you think maybe some of them who received this letter were scared? Maybe, probably. They knew the implications Jesus said to disciple the nations, okay, we have Rome to deal with. You think we have it bad. The disciples, it's, he didn't disciple a million people. He discipled 12, and one of them jumped ship. So these are the things apparently we're supposed to know. Now here in verse 20, we see that he's the great shepherd. Jesus is enthroned. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he rules and reigns over the nations with a rod of iron. We know that from Psalm 110.1, and Hebrews has already quoted that several times. He's the high priest in the true tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, and his ministry there has everything to do with the affairs of men today. Which means that in order for us to be obedient subduers, the, the, the obedient subduers that the Bible has told us to be, we have to know this stuff about Jesus. We have to know that he's our mediator. His, his covenant is secured by his blood. Um, his law has been written on our hearts by the Spirit. And, and everything we do must be fueled by this very large view of Christ the priest king. And honestly, like, I, maybe you can relate, but even like, you know, I grew up in the church and I... I just always believed in Jesus. I, I, don't, I, I don't remember a moment I, that it was just sort of this 
aha moment. I mean, there were a couple times I think it was made more palpable, more real to me by the Spirit. But generally, we, we sort of divorce Jesus from anything to do on earth, and we just think he's there, and yeah, he's our king, yeah, he's our priest. You know, we give lip service to that, but does that have anything to do with us here and now? Well, absolutely. He's given us his spirit, right? Think of it in terms of military language. Our commander, right, the Lord Jesus, he isn't unaware of what's happening on the battlefield. He's not clueless. He's not busy filing paperwork, unconcerned with what's taking place on the earth. No, just the opposite. He's the commander of an army that cannot lose, that cannot be defeated. He has issued to us his law word, which is the means to achieve final victory. So this king has brought us into this eternal covenant. So we need to see Joshua, that's Jesus, leading the way. Even though he's not standing here right now in front of us, he's leading the way as Joshua. But what is the way, right? That's a good question. What is the way? We learned all the way back in the early chapters that Jesus is Joshua, we are Israel. We are on earth to do the will of God, and the way is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But this establishment of the kingdom comes with a whole bunch of ethical patterns attached to it. So we're not an army trying to figure out what in the world we're supposed to do. We have the plan. The plan has rules, and it has things that are off limits. The marriage bed must be undefiled. Brotherly love must be continued. Leaders lead by serving, and those under that servant leadership should follow. The character of the army matters too. We must be free from the love of money. We must be content. We must remember those in prison. We must be hospitable to our Christian brothers and sisters. These are the ethics of the kingdom. In other words, there must not be sin in the camp. Think of Achan, one man with a sin that ruined it all. Sin in the camp. But, but pay attention to what's at the very center of this passage. Look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read those again, so follow along. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. Notice the connection. Jesus came to purchase his people by his own blood, but in order for that to happen... He had to be outside the camp, outside the gate. Jesus was crucified outside the the city walls of Jerusalem. Verse 13, So let us go out to him outside the camp. Why? Doing what? Bearing his reproach. This whole series has led up to this very crucial point. We must go outside the camp and bear his reproach. In other words, there is, there is no shortcutting the redemptive plan of God. There is no taking the commands of God and twisting them up to fit what we think. And then we go about our day as if we didn't just offend our God who is a consuming fire. If, if we want to join this battalion, you have to go outside the camp, which means you can't have Jesus and humanism. You can't have Jesus and sexual immorality. You can't have Jesus and and hold on to anything else that he's against. There is no coming to Christ on your terms. And that's the problem with the church today. 
And we see this everywhere. We see it everywhere. We are trying to get people to come to Christ on their terms. That's what evangelism is anymore. That's why when we're out at a high school and we're preaching the gospel and we're raising awareness to the abortion holocaust and, or we're on the college campuses and we have Christians, Christians, who come up and say, well, that's not very loving. Huh. Okay, let's talk about that. Why, why do they say that? Because they want people to come to Christ on their own terms. Not the terms that Jesus has laid out, but their own terms, right? Um, Rick Warren had said this once. Try Jesus. You know, Try him for 30 days. He can help you. Can Christ help a poor, bewildered sinner? Absolutely. He can. But he's not this herbal medicine to try. He's this Lord to submit to. He, he's not a product to try. He's a king that must be obeyed. And what the modern church has done is try to shape up all the hard parts of the Bible in order to make it more palatable to people. We, we try so hard, so hard to be liked by the world, which means, which leads you know, us to creating all these ways to just repackage the gospel, make it nice, throw a little paint on it, update it, make it better. You know, so they use language like, oh, we, we are open and inviting. Uh, anyone's welcome. We know what that actually means. We know what it means. Because typically those types of churches that say that have the rainbow flag out front. So we're trying to create all these cute ways, and Jesus will have none of it. What we are doing, what we're doing is asking people not to go outside the camp to Jesus. As if you can come to him and not bear his reproach. If we are going to take the land, we must go outside the camp. We cannot achieve a single thing if it does not start and end with the word of God. And this is why, this is why by and large, even the pro-life movement is a complete failure. We're trying to win a battle on completely different terms that are foreign to the Bible. Instead of seeking to abolish abortion... We, we just like to tinker with it. We like to manage it. We like to do it on our terms. That's not what repentance is, is it? So we want to try and assert the ethics of the kingdom of God, because thou shalt not murder, and that's true. It is murder. But we also want to be nice and not make the liberal anarchists too mad. So what are we doing? We're not going outside the camp to bear the reproach of Christ. There is sin in our camp, which means we're not with Christ's army, but instead we've gone AWOL. Now listen, if you want to see real change in the culture around us, and I think all of us do, because we talk about this all the time, if you want to see the gospel move among our nation again, then we must not try and dismiss the reproach of Christ. You cannot have this crown apart from a cross. You can't have the resurrection without death. You can't have the glorious lordship of Christ apart from his scorned and bloody, bloodied body. You cannot circumvent the reproach. You have to embrace it. You have to love it. You have to see that when Christ was rejected, you were rejected. When Christ was beaten, you were beaten. When Christ was nailed to the cross, you were nailed to the cross. When Christ was raised, you were raised. If you are in Christ, that whole train of thought, all those things, that's you. Now, to put it in the language of Hebrews, 
You cannot possibly obey Christ if you want to stay within the camp of Jerusalem. You can't. You can't have the temple. You can't have the sacrifices. You can't have the city of Jerusalem. To put it in our terms, you can't, you cannot continue to, you know, this unending regulations of, of, of in the pro-life movement that just continues to allow abortion to, on demand to happen. You, cannot, you can't have humanism, which means our kids need Christian teaching. You can't have, you can't have Jesus and a little bit of Darwin. You, you can't have Jesus and a little bit of, uh, of, of paganism. You have to have Christ. You can't, you can't do it. Look at verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, let's get a little nerdy for a second. The the verb to come in the Greek, it's a present active participle, which is just a fancy way of saying that this verse is not about waiting for Jesus to come back and bring the city. So, so most translations don't do justice to it. Um, as we saw last week, the vision of Revelation 21, the bride coming down from heaven to earth as a city, all that is happening in history. The point of this verse, though, is we don't have a city here in Jerusalem, the one that's about to be brought to its knees with covenant sanctions in AD 70. No, we have a heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the bride of Christ here and now. The better way to translate that is we are seeking the city that is coming right now. It's a present, active participle. The Greek language is very precise on a lot of these things. My point is this. The Hebrews were tempted to ignore the commission of Christ and go back to Jerusalem. You cannot go back. You cannot turn your back on Christ and expect any blessing. You cannot get to Him without His reproach. Our city is everlasting. Our city, the people of God on earth, is not like the earthly Jerusalem. It's way more precious because Jesus Christ is the architect. He's the builder. He's building this house, and he's doing it all based upon his blood, which means, as we get close to the end here, that for us today, the final word here in Hebrews is a reminder of all that has gone before us. There is no future under the humanistic concoctions of man. There is no future. There is no possible way to build anything that matters if it's built on sand. You cannot use humanistic tools to build a covenant house that honors Christ. The tools don't work. If we are going to impact the world around us, we have to embrace the reproach. You are not going to be liked by the world. You cannot take down the high places and simultaneously make peace with your detractors. The kingdom of God does not come with terms and conditions that man gets to decide on his own. It's, all, it's unconditional surrender. That's what it is. And you might say, well, that's not the task of the church. We're not supposed to change the culture. Well, here's what I would say to you. Saying we're not supposed to change the culture and we're supposed to just preach the gospel is the same thing as saying, I'm not supposed to help do the laundry and serve my wife by helping with the dishes. I'm supposed to just love my wife. (coughs) This sort of dualistic truncation of the gospel of the kingdom is why we're in the debacle that we are in. Hebrews itself, I hope you have seen, utterly dismantles 
this entire worldview. Instead of explaining away our calling, instead of shortchanging ourselves, instead of intentionally trying to change the terms and conditions of the covenant, we need to get to a place of repentance and we need to get there fast. Christ suffered outside the camp. We must suffer with him. This, this easy-peasy Christian faith that's packaged um, by our pietistic churches today cannot give you the fruit of the kingdom of God. So instead of going that route, we got to go the route of Christ. Before he got his crown, he endured the cross. And this is the final word for this series. Um, <clears throat> and I could sum it up no different than what we find in verse 25, the very last verse of the book. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Not the grace that is bundled together with Joel Osteen niceties. Not the grace that is man-centered and man-focused, self only on the self. Not that type of grace. The grace I'm talking about, the grace Hebrews has emphasized repeatedly, is the kind of grace that does not have a man-centered agenda, but a God-centered one and a God-exalting one. The type of grace that makes what we believe, say, and do all about Jesus Christ and His kingdom. So let's take the land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would impact us and move us towards greater faithfulness to you. That your spirit would cut away the sin that entangles us, remove the bitterness that poisons us, and destroy the idols that consume us. Give us your peace, Lord, because you are the God of peace. We ask that your glory would shine brightly in this dark land, that you would grant repentance to your church first, then repentance to those who mock and scoff at you. Your glory is at stake, and we know that you are jealous for it, so we ask that you would arise, O God of hosts, and vindicate your name. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.